The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, thank you very much. Let me just express my uh, gratitude and thanks for this opportunity to be with you today. You've encouraged me by coming out on a Saturday, a beautiful day here, and yet you want to hear things that have uh, more traction and that matter both to your faith and to your culture. And I am very encouraged by that. So let me just say thank you. Thank you to the board as well for inviting me here. I do enjoy it. Thank you for not inviting me to Winnipeg in February. (laughs) Appreciate that. All right, I'm going to talk about, uh, kind of wrapping things up, the greatness of the Great Commission. The scripture will be in uh, Matthew's Gospel, 28th chapter. And interestingly, this uh, section of scripture, the pericope, doesn't really begin. We always seem to start and read this in verse 18, but it actually begins in verse 16, and that's where I'll be. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this passage is probably or should be familiar to most of you, particularly if you have been bound uh, Christianity long This passage is so familiar that it has a common name, right? The Great Commission. Now, this familiarity causes me some concern. We tend, because we're fallen and finite humans, we tend to tune out because we think we've heard it all before. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you're like me, you tend to categorize the messages you've even heard on Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And it probably comes down into two different categories. One is the message that's given by a furloughed missionary, right? The missionary comes home for a few months, comes as a guest to your church, and talks about a lot of weird food, talks about strange stories, weird, bizarre animals, strange customs, pulls out a hat or a scarf or a weird musical instrument, and says very little about the text. Or, on the other hand, I've heard messages, and maybe you're like me, where you have some authority figure opening up the Scripture to this particular message, and really is the message is designed to provoke guilt because you all aren't witnessing enough, right? And there's an agenda here because it's really an agenda about we need more bodies, bucks, and buildings, Right, And so how are we going to get that? We're going to witness and bring them on in. Well, by God's grace, I hope to avoid both of those ditches and instead teach you about the greatness of the Great Commission. Because you see, if Jesus is Lord, the Lord's commission must necessarily be great. And we need to know it, 
we need to believe it and we need to execute it. I'm going to divide this text into basic, four basic themes. Talk about the foundation of the Great Commission, the field or focus of the Great Commission, the function of the Great Commission, and the faithful one of the Great Commission. Now you'll notice that I'm not following what my mentor said, who said, avoid alliteration always. <laughs> Just seeing if you're listening there, all right. All right, the foundation of the Great Commission. The words I just read, starting in Matthew 28, verse 16, are the words that conclude Matthew's gospel. This is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. But these words represent the apex and therefore a climax of Matthew's witness to the Savior. Matthew has been determined to weave a particular theme throughout his gospel witness. And these words in Matthew 28 form the capstone of that theme. They're the underscore and exclamation point of what Matthew's been driving at in verse after verse after verse. And therefore, to understand the Great Commission, we must understand how and why these concluding words function as that capstone to Matthew's emphasis. Matthew's predominant theme, I think, is twofold. He weaves throughout his witness two things. One, the lordship of Jesus, and consequently, two, Jesus' present rule of his kingdom. Matthew, with great intention, commences his witness by placing the crown rights of Jesus uh, patently before us. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He begins right out of the box, noting the royal lineage of the one to whom he's witnessing. In verse 6, again he says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Once again, underscoring, hey, by the way, the lineage of this one I'm talking about is royal. And what's one of the first questions that come out in Matthew 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Continuing in Matthew 2. O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. He selects that prophecy to talk about this one who's come. And so then John the baptizer comes and gives a particular message. Interestingly, it's ethical in focus. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At this particular point then, we see Satan tempt Jesus. And one of the interesting temptations is, is he takes him to a very high mountain and he shows them what? All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And of course, Jesus rebuts him in a number of ways there. Interestingly, in Matthew's articulation, his narrative of this, he places this temptation last in the sequence of temptations where Luke places it second. Why? Matthew's trying to get our attention to the fact that primacy and recency He wants us to go from that narrative into the next, reminding them again that there's this cosmic um, uh, collision that's occurring and it involves the kingdom, the rulership, who is authoritative. And he reminds them of that. 
After he does that, Jesus now comes on the scene and begins speaking, begin teaching. And what does he say? Similar to John, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then begins to explain that, the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For there shall be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that leads him into, as he's talking about this, who is being blessed, to talk about then how should we um, function spiritually? Well, we should pray. And how should we categorize our prayers? Well, one of the things we pray for is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. In heaven. And then he tells us that we are therefore to act consistently with what we have prayed. We are to act consistently with our prayed. So after he teaches us to pray, he says, and by the way, seek first, and the word there is again a first not of sequence, like a laundry list or a grocery list. Okay, eggs, uh, milk, uh, kingdom of God, uh, righteousness. No. It's to predominate. It's a priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in answer to the prayer that we pray that his will would be done, his kingdom would come on earth. And so when you seek that righteousness, not in heaven after we've died, right? It's on earth. He goes on and as he concludes this great sermon, he reminds them, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will do what? Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father. Hmm, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Interesting. And when, this, when he finished this, people are astonished and people are amazed. Why? Because the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They've been good church people, good synagogue people, but no one taught with authority. This Jesus did. Having said that, we move in the chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and we see an attestation in Jesus' ministry for the claims he makes as to his authority and his teaching. For example, we see a leper who's cleansed. Very important. Lepers aren't necessarily healed. They are cleansed. What's the message? Those things which are ceremonially dead under the old covenant uh, administration become alive. And then we see actual sickness being healed. That animate sickness is cured. We see the wind and the rain quelled. Inanimate external creation is controlled by this one. We then see demons whipped around and sent out and so forth. That which is spiritual and personal, bow down and obey this one who teaches with authority. And then we see a few more very particular ones. We see a paralytic, a paralytic who can now move in order to follow him. We see a blind man who can now see in order to perceive who is the king of kings. All the way through this, we see these instances of Jesus' ministry attesting to his claims, his royal claims of his kingship and authority. And then Jesus himself, if we couldn't 
get it from the, what he's done, summarizes it, actually using an interesting form of logic. He says in chapter 12, And if I cast out demons by uh, Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's the form of Jesus' argument. If A, B. A, therefore B. His point is the kingdom's here. Then what does he do? He begins to teach them in parables about the kingdom. He first talks about the sower. And he goes at great length talking about the soils and the sowers. And this is very important. We ought to be about the spreading of the kingdom. And we have indiscriminately, we put these things out there. That's the mechanism by which we do it. And there's differing results. But then he gets more specific. He tells the parable, the wheat and the tares, right? The wheat and the tares. Interestingly, they grow up together. The field is the world, he says. And by the way, it's a wheat field. I wish people would get this right. We tend to think it's a tare field. Oh, it's just so bad. Actually, it's a wheat field. And by the way, what's pulled up first? The tares. The tares are pulled up first. So if your eschatology differs from the parable, I suggest you change your eschatology. But that's a little footnote there. Then he tells some very interesting parables of the kingdom. Mustard seed, right? This is a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That which is small becomes very large. The kingdom has a quantitative dimension. It grows. That which is small, it becomes large. But then he tells the parable of the leaven. The kingdom of God is like leaven. A small bit changes the whole loaf. It has a qualitative dimension. It changes things. It transforms it transforms, beginning, of course, in Christians with their minds. We are to metamorpho. We are to be changed. We are to be transfigured in our minds, which is how we worship now, okay? Well, and the same is true here. The kingdom is like that. Quantitatively, it grows from small to large. Qualitatively, it transforms the very character of what's going on. Having said this and thought about the kingdom, we get to the situation where he begins interacting with the disciples, right? Simon Peter confesses he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, you got it right. Then he says, I tell you, Peter, you didn't get this from the flesh. You got this because it was revealed by the Spirit. And by the way, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about it. Gates are defensive. They are defensive. That which tries to protect Satan's realm cannot withstand the oncoming promotion of God's kingdom. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There's that interesting dyad. Heaven, earth, earth, Heaven, interesting. Heaven, earth, earth, heaven. Thy will be done on earth that is is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay. 
triumphal entry. Jesus says, um, if anyone says anything to you, he sends them to go get, uh, you know, something to ride on. Get a taxi, right? He says, the Lord needs them. If they ask you, say, the Lord's need them, and he will send them at once. Why does he say that? Ah, he's alluding to uh, Zechariah 9, Isaiah 62. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. It's not so much he's getting the donkey and the colt, although that's part of the prophecy. It's that it's because it's to host the king. So even when he's going to the means of the new covenant, as Joe said, um, he's emphasizing, at least from Matthew's perspective, his royalty. Now it's in that story arc, in that narrative, that Jesus then comes to them and says, all authority. This is not some vague, nice-sounding uh, platitude to end a gospel witness. These are not idle words. These are a climax, a pronouncement of his command, that his command in its very nature, first and foremost, is a command of absolute authority. Exousia, it's authority, not simply power, but authority, authorized power. And so therefore, we can be confident that the one who tells us to preach to the nations is the one that made them. The one who tells us to proclaim forgiveness is the only one who can forgive them. The one who tells us to preach to the dead is the Lord of the resurrection. That's the import of his coming to them at this point. That's what we have to understand as the foundation of the Great Commission. Witnessing and one-on-one evangelism, that work is an expression of his divine rule, and we must never forget that. We must keep this in mind because it is the foundation of the Great Commission. Well, then what then is the field or what is the focus of the Great Commission? Where is the commission's activity? Well, it's here and now on the earth. That seems like a pretty obvious point. But sometimes we forget that. The Great Commission, what Jesus gave us to do, is here and now on earth. And that tells us history matters. History is significant. History is important. This work exists to be done. And so we ought to resist all forms of fatalism. We ought to resist all forms of indifference. We ought to resist all forms of reticence. And certainly, we should resist retreating. Us four, no more. Katie, bar the door. Silo mentality. You see, the commission influences our conduct. We are to be salt and light. We're not to hide ourselves under bushels. We're to be evident where others, that is to say, people different from the believing community, can see them and all those sorts of things. The commission influences our prayers. Thy will be done. Your kingdom come whatever you bind on earth, and so on and so forth. And this tells us that the field of the Great Commission, there is legitimate gospel activity right now, and it should occur right now, and, should be in, and we should be involved in it. Because the field is broad. All of human experience is part of history. The Great Commission is a broad commission. All of human experience in all of history. So education medicine, politics, charity and mercy, physics, art and music, and law and philosophy, all these kinds of things are rightful endeavors 
in history that can be subject to the Great Commission. And so we've got the foundation of the Great Commission, the field and focus, something that's pretty obvious, but now we have the function. What is it that we're supposed to do in this Great Commission? Well, there's a general and a specific aspect to this. The first thing is a matter of action. We're to go. We are to go, not as a matter of guilt, but as a matter of encouragement. There are good works that have been ordained by the Lord himself, and it involves his using secondary means, us, to accomplish them. Over and over again, we are to go. We are to be action-oriented, not passive. And the good news is that he equips us to do them. He's predestined us to walk in good works. And the good news is he's equipped us, he's qualified us to walk in them. Second Peter uh, 1.3 tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have God's power that's been granted to us for these kinds of things. And therefore, Philippians tells us, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And not only does he grant us this power, he strengthens us and qualifies us to do the works he's already predestined for us to walk in. Colossians, for example, chapter 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, so as you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God context makes plain. This is not limited to inner renovation. It's not limited to just helping do church stuff. It's every good work. And he also prays that you may be strengthened with all power, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? The kingdom of his beloved Son. It's all related to the preeminence of Christ as the Lord of Lords, as the King, and consequently we can have confidence that he's not an AWOL King. He is in fact engaged and active in the world, having predetermined good works for us in which to walk. He commands us to go, and he strengthens and qualifies us to do these things. And then in particular, it, it requires us to do three things. The first thing that we are to do is to disciple the nations. This implies several things. The notion of discipling. It means that we need to be trained. Training must occur. It implies a systematic course of instruction. Uh, I really appreciate what Joe responded to in terms of, you know, catechizing is not a bad word particularly for our children, the systematic exposition of the things of God. That can take many forms. It doesn't have to be, you know, boring kinds of stuff, but we ought to do the function of it. It implies training, discipling. It also implies the notion of patience and perseverance. Patience, am I losing patience over that phone? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. I had a situation once where a guy was just driving me nuts. I mean, this guy, good guy, 
drive me crazy. And he was just so fixated on a particular doctrine, like he'd go, you know, Leviticus 2, and he would teach this doctrine that had nothing to do with Leviticus 2, right? Uh, Zechariah 1, he'd teach this doctrine. I mean, it, and I got frustrated. I told one of my mentors, this guy's driving me crazy. I can't believe it. And my uh, friend said to me, um, was the guy a Christian? I go, oh yeah, he's Christian, you know, da 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 da. I said, well, then what you do is you take your Bible and you open it with them and you spend a half an hour or an hour or a half a day or a day or a week or two weeks or three you know, and he kept doing the reducio, so I felt, you know, appropriately rebuked. Yeah, it takes patience. It takes endurance. And we dare not shirk the opportunity. We are commanded to do it. And that's just a one-on-one situation. But we're to disciple. It also implies not only training with patience and perseverance, but regular instruction. I one time had a teacher that said, your assignment for the year is to read the entire textbook. Well, okay. But that's not really regular instruction, is it? And it implies what? Correction. Two-way correction. If we're going to actually disciple people, we're going to have to gently and appropriately correct as we encourage, and we're going to have to be open to being adjusted, corrected, and so forth. The flip side of that is we're to disciple the nations. Now, that is more than converting individuals. I gave some one-on-one examples But discipling nations is more than converting individuals. The Holy Spirit gave Matthew a particular word here. He didn't use the Greek word that applies to individual humans. Disciple, anthropoi, humans. No. He did not say, I want you to disciple the different races. Okay? Didn't use that word. Nor did he say, I want you to just disciple the political subdivisions. Didn't use any of those Greek words. He didn't use the word that applies to kind of like, this is not technical, clumps of cultural groups. That's very important for the purposes of this conference. We are to disciple cultures. It involves people and their mechanism of how they're associated and how they're working. It involves probably the uh, political side of things, but it's broader than that. They're cultural conventions and so forth. Okay, the ethnoi. Now we see this over and over again in the Messianic prophecies. And so the use of this term is very uh, consistent with what the Old Testament was pointing toward, toward this coming Messiah. For example, Psalm 2, right? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Then it goes on to admonish. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the work uh, of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, etc., etc. That is cited over and over again in the book of Revelation. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Well, because he's a king, because he rules over the nations, he says, I want him discipled. And we've been commissioned to do so. 
Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. It involves something more than individual conversion. It's a matter of justice that we are to disciple with. Later on, Psalm 72. May, now notice how this is not limited to like Israel. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. We're to disciple nations, plural. Psalm 138, all the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. The message we have ought to provoke gratitude in those who are in authority. And so Jesus is called by John in the book of Revelation, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that was probably pretty hard to pin uh, for John, and irrespective whether you date this under Nero's rule or Domitian's rule, it's not the point. It wasn't a pleasant place to be, and yet he's saying faithfully by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, that one, he is the ruler of the uh, kings on earth. And then he goes on in chapter 11 and says, oh, by the way, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's a transformational aspect that occurs that when the gospel commission is faithfully proclaimed, it transforms these kingdoms. And why shouldn't that be? You know, pretty soon, whether you follow the church calendar or not, we're going to be getting into um, a ritual part of the calendar. At least it hasn't been completely sanitized yet. And no doubt you're going to hear things like this. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We typically kind of stop with the, you know, it's a cute baby, baby Jesus, right? It's just so nice. He's sweet baby Jesus. We stop reading, of course. Of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, i.e. from the incarnation, forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a direct connection between the incarnation of the Redeemer and the discipling of the nations. It was always the plan to to have this occur, and the zeal of God will make sure that it does occur. This Jesus is the discipler of the nations, and it simply increases. It simply increases. It continues to increase. So that Isaiah can say, one day, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow. Wow. Waters cover the sea like completely. It's very interesting. And so we're to disciple nations. We're to disciple nations. And as we do that, we are to sanctify the nations in the sense that we are to, I'll put it in quotes here, baptize them. You can't baptize like nations, right? But there's to bear the mark of the king of kings. 
The nations are to bear the objective marks of being Christian. I would say in structure and in righteousness and justice and so on and so forth. Pretty interesting, you know. Um, okay, we got a little time here, a little biblical theology. We begin in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the, the, the first proclamation of the gospel and what happens. There's this snake here and a prophecy is given. And what happens? The heel of the seed of Eve is, is bitten. And yet the seed of Eve will do what to the seed of the serpent? Crush what? His head. Very significant from a biblical theology perspective. Crush his head. Hmm. Let's see, God gives the law, the books of Moses continue to talk about this, and where are uh, the law to be symbolically remembered? On the head and on the hands, so that our thoughts and our work is to be distinctively under the Lord, distinctively Christian. Isn't that interesting? The book of Judges, things kind of fall apart, and yet we see, for example, J.L. going into the temple of Sisyphus, uh, Sisera and doing what? Giving him some warm milk and taking a tent peg and boom, right through his head, the evil king, crushed. We see a little bit later in the book of Judges, another situation, the name escapes me, where they take blocks of bricks and crush the head of some of these rebellious people. You see a guy named David, a man after God's own heart. He takes five smooth stones and does what to the enemy of God? Pegs him in the head. Interesting, isn't it? We see um, Jesus crucified as a substitute. Very important point because it's being denied by the emerging folks. Where? We say Calvary, bad translation, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the head. Interesting, isn't it? And then we see, irrespective of your eschatology, something called a beast. And the beast has a particular sanctifying mark. And where's that mark to be? Oh, head and hands. Kind of like the law of God supposed to be on head and hands. This is a big deal. And Jesus says in his commission, I want the nations to bear my mark. And I'm commissioning you to do that. There's a counterfeit mark out there. But I want the nations to bear my mark. Well, and finally, an aspect of the commission is that we are to teach them. We disciple them. But we're to teach them. What is it that we're to teach them? All that he's commanded us. This is both comprehensive and it is liberating. It's comprehensive. We're to teach the whole counsel of God. This was Paul's burden as he weeps with the elders of Ephesus, right? I did not shirk from teaching you the whole counsel of God. And this means, again, with the proper manner. Remember, the manner matters. But it also means that we have to teach the popular as well as uh, what the culture may deem to be the unpopular. We teach redemption, and we teach judgment. We teach forgiveness and repentance. We teach God's love and God's wrath. We teach grace 
and law. And by the way, those are not in opposition. This is one of my pet peeves, I suppose, because it's just a, a mangling of the text of Scripture. Titus 2 tells us that he has redeemed us from all lawlessness. We're redeemed from lawlessness, not unto lawlessness. And why does he do that, Paul tells Titus? So that we can be a people for God's own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Okay? We must proclaim these things. You see, this is more than a message of individual conversion. We do not obey the Great Commission, and hence we do not promote the gospel if we simply seek individual conversions. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We ought to seek individual conversions. But if we think our job is done, it is simply not. Now, why is that? Because, again, we're commanded to teach all that Jesus commanded us. And the Scripture addresses us not simply as unsaved uh, you know, pagans, but it addresses us as men. It addresses us as women. It addresses us as husbands. It addresses us as wives. It addresses us as parents. It addresses us as children. It addresses us as employers and as employees. It addresses us as political rulers. It addresses us as citizens. Over and over again, the Scripture is specific in its um, ethical reach to address the whole of man. And we cannot possibly fulfill the Great Commission unless we are proclaiming these kinds of teachings as well. The Great Commission, in short, requires us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Why? He is the one who does have preeminence. It's just that simple. So it's a comprehensive pedagogy we are to have. The curriculum's big. Ah, but it's also very liberating. Please hear me out on this. The Great Commission teaching is very liberating. The things we are to teach are not man's, but the Lord's commands. We're to teach the Lord's commands, not man's. You see, teaching God's commands instead of man's traditions means resisting the temptation to use extra-biblical standards, either as to conversion or as to sanctification, including false standards. There's people I know, and you probably know them too, and I'm sure we have these tendencies in and of ourselves, they run as fast as they can around the wrong track, right? And so they think that the essence of uh, Christian sanctification deals with, you know, you should drink ale instead of lager, or you should drink none of the above. I mean, or they go into like Bible version fever. They always want to pick the fight of, well, you're not using the authorized version. I'm using the version Paul used. It's like, oh, please. You know. or, or they get wound up in a knot over particular, particular, particular schooling choices. Well, are you homeschooling? Yeah. Oh, that's good. What curriculum are you using? Well, I'm using this one. Oh. I mean, right? Right? Or then you got the home everything movement. Right? Homeschool, home birth, home brain surgery. You know, home pilot training, uh, you know, bridge building, all right. Or undue emphasis on pet doctrines. I remember I lived in San, I lived in San Francisco for a number of years. I love that city. It's, one of my, it's my favorite American city, to be honest. I love it. Great food, great Italian district, all that stuff. So I, I show up at this church, and it's, it's dinky. You know, like everybody there is like 28 or 35 people, not age, people. I mean, that's it. 
So I show up. I'm obviously new. Hi, I'm a visitor kind of a deal. Immediately, this guy, kind of a plump kind of guy, he, he had, and that'll be relevant, and he had like a stack of 14 books in his, in his hand. He comes over to me and kind of gets in my face, you know. It's kind of like, so uh, he asked me a number of three questions. Three questions to visitors. Okay, now think about this. Um, are you new here? Pretty obviously I was. Oh, uh, yeah. Second question right off the bat. Do you like theology and reading theology? Uh, yeah, you know. He's like, at this point, I can hear his heart beating faster and sweat is pouring off his face. He's got a live one, right? A new guy who likes theology. Third question, I'm not making this up. It's, are you in for a superlapsarian? I say, well, you know, I'm kind of vegetarian, really, you know. <laughs> I answer a fool according to his folly, see, at that point. I, don't do that. I'm not a vegetarian, by the way. Anyway. Or here's what I like. I go around, talk to people, and there's a certain species of evangelicals, typically in the Reformed camp, that, that basically what they do is they kind of kind of circle one another, kind of, you know, and try to figure out where they disagree. You know, that's, 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 that's their job description, right? And so you meet one of these guys, and I, this has happened to me. It's like, you know, so, uh, you know, kind of, you know, are you, you know, spiritual or religious? Yeah, I, I'm, oh, that's good. Well, are you like, you know, a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's really good. Well, are you, you know, like... What do you think of the 16th century? Well, I'm a Protestant. Oh, good. You're a Protestant. Great. Well, you know, well, are you kind of like, uh, you're Reformed? Yeah, I'm, I'm Reformed. So are you like, you know, kind of like Continental or Presbyterian? Oh, I'm Presbyterian. Oh, that's excellent. Excellent. So, you know, do you kind of like the regulative principle of worship? Well, yeah. Oh, that's great, great. So, like, do you sing in church? Well, yeah. Uh, do you sing, like, psalms? Yeah, I sing psalms. Oh, man, this is great. Do you sing with instruments? <laughs> No, we don't use instruments. Oh, that's just awesome. So do you use the blue psalter? Oh, no. You know, we use the red one, heretic. I mean, what is that? I don't think that's faithfully teaching all that Jesus commanded. Right? So let's put aside our little preferences. I wrote an article about X amount of years ago, 14 years, called When Preferences Become Precepts. Preferences become precepts, the hyphenated church. Grace Church, hyphen, a politically active church. Grace Church, a homeschooling community. Great, you know, put in your own favorite blank. We are to command to teach the whole counsel of God, not our preferences. So let's be careful there. Finally, okay, we've gotten to the foundation, the field, the focus, and so forth, the function. Let's not forget what it's all about. It's about the faithful one of the Great Commission. Now notice, and this is why I like to start with this part of the pericope right here. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Ask yourself a question, because I try to ask this to myself. When I encounter Christ, and I don't mean that in some weird way, but when I see Jesus through the scriptures and so forth, do I, is my response one of worship? 
Or is it one of evaluation? Well, Jesus, what do you have for me today? Do we worship him? Pretty important. We're made to worship. We will either worship the creator or some form of the creation. That is the issue. That's the truth versus the lie. This is Romans 1 stuff. They worshiped him, but then I find something very comforting here. Some doubted. You see, Jesus knows us well, and our sanctification's not complete. And even in the, the moment of beatific vision, of seeing Jesus, they doubted. I get great comfort from that, that in that time, they doubt. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but understand that there's two brackets on Matthew's gospel that help us understand what's going on here. He begins with a promise in Matthew 1. She shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus ends the Great Commission with the same promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. And so here these people come to him. They see him. They worship. In the midst of their worship, they're doubting. And what do we see? Jesus comes to them even though they're doubting. Jesus initiates. He is so for us in this idea of commission, that he comes to us even in our doubting, even in our wavering, even when we have spines of yellow, he's there. And he does not issue a rebuke. He doesn't even issue an admonition. And so we can take great confidence here as we fulfill the great commission that there's no condition of perfection before we can worship or serve him. We don't have to, I've seen so many people derailed where they think they have to have the 100% perfect right motive and the 100% perfect right feeling and, 100%, and they do nothing. Jesus says there's no condition of, of perfection before you may worship me or before you may serve in my commission. I take great comfort from that. Instead, the Savior, in the midst of their worship that's imperfect, the Savior directs them to focus on him. He talks about his power and authority. He talks about his commands. He talks about his promise for intimacy and presence. And he talks about his promise of comfort. Focus on the faithful one of the Great Commission. Because you see, the Great Commission is ultimately about him. He is to have preeminence in all things. And this is the final triumph. There is an end to this commission. As long as we're not growing weary in well-doing. We get a picture of this in Revelation. Again, irrespective of your eschatological preferences. John tells us that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Interesting word, isn't it? A new Jerusalem. A city. Hmm. Looking at Jeremiah again, perhaps. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorn for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I am with you always, you see. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The ultimate capstone of the Great Commission. And then we see the tenderness of Jesus. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you think about that? I mean, you know, like people in your face. You certainly have people messing around with your eyes. But there'll be such cleansing, such intimacy, such um, wow, that you're going to have Jesus himself take his thumb and put it right in your eyes and wipe away the tears. Wow. Talk about closeness. Emmanuel, God himself, will touch us in our little finicky eyes and we'll let him do it. Man. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment graciousness, even in consummation, there's grace of God that he gives us water without, pay, without payment. Wow. He gives us that which sustains life. Not because of our meritorious works, but because he's gracious. But then he adds this to Scripture. The one who conquers will have this heritage. We are not to be potted plants for Jesus. The one who conquers has this gracious heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Our very sonship, our very adoption, our very engrafting in having Jesus as our older brother and God as our father is a culmination of this great commission. And it involves us conquering. Not in some trifleistic way kind of a deal, but as we work together in this commission. And yet, here's another marker that is thrown out by the emergent folks like Rob Bell. He says, but, an adversative here, as for the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is real, ladies and gentlemen. The Great Commission has consequences. We're playing for keeps. And he's commissioning us with this. And he's empowering us, of course. But this is real. But if you know your scripture, you know I misread the text. Because the adversative does not begin 
with the faithless and detestable and murderers. The first people in line for hell, the lake of fire, are the cowards. It's very sobering. And as you know, probably Greek, the position of words matters. So before you get to the perverts, you know, and the, the Wiccans and, you know, all those people over there, it's the cowards who are first in line. And I think that's an um, important gut check for us. You know, I work with Christian students all the time, and frankly, a lot of them need a spinal transplant. They just don't have the spine. They don't, you know, here we have people, and we can debate the merits of various military actions, but the fact of the matter is there are people who are willing to die for the ability to speak, you know, to protect freedom, and we have kids on campus that won't speak up against unrighteousness and evil. I'm sorry, but get in line, you know. We need to understand, and again, as I mentioned earlier in the morning, courage is the flower of conviction. That's why groups like the Ezra Institute, and I'm very impressed, more impressed than I even was before, that they have a clear mission, a clear content, and a clear um, goal to equip people to be able to engage in these kinds of issues, to be what they're supposed to be. God bless them. You should support them. You should support them until it hurts, frankly. They didn't ask me to say that, but I think that's true. This is important. This is light. This is salt. And we need to have that. Because before we start pointing fingers at all the icky stuff that's out there, we got to be engaged. And we have to overcome our own fear to do that. And why can't we? Why shouldn't we if Jesus is with us? If he's the one who's given us, not a spirit of timidity, right? He's empowered us, the very Holy Spirit. As Bonhoeffer put it, another man whose um, actions were consistent with his words, he says, if you want to find eternity... You must serve the times. If you want to find eternity, you must serve the times. Be like the men of Ishkar, who understood the times so that, the, so that Israel knew how they ought to act. And so the greatness of the Great Commission is not some dry, academic, dusty relic. It's not some pious platitude we kind of spin off when we need to have a building program or something. But rather, it is our very life. Because when we're doing the Great Commission, we are following the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one to whom every knee shall bow, the one who is waiting in heaven so his enemies are being made a footstool. That's the one we serve, and we can be certain that because he conquers, we shall conquer and have an inheritance that is glorious with him forever and ever. And that's the greatness of the Great Commission. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.